Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. G'day and welcome to this, the penultimate episode for 2021 from Australia's only national university on the shores of Lake Burley Griffin, directly across from the Federal Parliament. I'm Mark Kenny. While Canberra is more often noted as ground zero for some very slippery and unimpressive politicians, It is also blessed with several high-profile national treasures. The ANU is part of this rich institutional fabric. Indeed, the quality of these bodies is a reassuring constant given the woeful tenor of our politics. I'm talking about the National Museum, the National Library, the National Archives, the National Gallery, the High Court and the Australian War Memorial, of course, the Museum of Australian Democracy. All of these are arranged around Lake Burley Griffin or Lake Burley Griffin Marnie, if you prefer, which I do. Undermining institutions is a common approach now for populist conservatives who put power before principle and for some on the left who'd happily shut down any person or debate that doesn't start and end with the position they've already arrived at. Happily today, I'm joined by a democracy sausage favourite from London who fits neither of those disreputable categories. Elizabeth Ames. Of course, Elizabeth is chair of the Menzies Australia Institute, the leading Australian research centre in Europe, based at uh, King's College London, and she's also chief operating officer at Atalanta. Elizabeth, welcome back. Hi, Mark. Great to be back. It's uh, very early in the morning where where you are and uh, sort of late in the afternoon or it's in the evening where I am. So um, really appreciate you giving us your time. Uh, You follow Australian politics pretty closely, but I guess what I'm talking to you about here, I'd like to really find out what's going on in the UK and Europe. So I wonder if I could just start by asking you, um, you know, we're heading into summer here, but you're heading into into the Northern Hemisphere winter there. I wonder if you could give us a sense uh, about what the vibe is uh, COVID-wise in particular. Yeah, I mean, I, I think often when we talk, Mark, there's these sort of eerie parallels between between our two countries. And um, it's certainly the case again here that 
we are heading into Christmas with a huge amount of uncertainty. The the new variant, Omicron or Micron, discovered, of course, in South Africa, but potentially not um, first incubated there, has really taken off in the UK. They didn't have pre-departure testing, so people were flying in positive, and they've only just now introduced that again. And we've had several really prominent scientists come out over the weekend and say, it's too little, too late. There is absolutely community spread of the variant here. And we should be expecting it to to drive another wave of COVID. The unknown this year, of course, is last year the vaccination drive had begun before Christmas, but it hadn't gotten mm-hmm. up to, to full speed. Most people, you know, the people who were going in were in their 80s had had their first dose. And of course, we know it takes at least two weeks for the first dose to become useful in terms of, of giving you any protection. So this year... You know, eighty percent of the the over twelves are, are double vaccinated, and we've now seen over thirty percent of the population have a booster jab here, including again eighty percent of those those over sixties who are most at risk. So, the government is really doubling down on its booster strategy. They are saying, right, we're going to protect Christmas. Everyone's having another jab. My husband, in fact, has just had his his booster jab because he was quite early in the rollout the first time, and, and it had been six months, so he's had another dose of Pfizer. I haven't had mine yet, but I'm expecting a call up any day now. And they have dropped the time between your second jab and your booster from the six-month recommended gap to a three-month recommended gap. So they are saying everyone in the country should have been called up for a booster by the end of January, which is a pretty extraordinary effort when you when you think about it. It does then have implications in terms of vaccine equity and, and where these new variants are coming from and, and you know, the, the sort of completely lamentable fact that, that the UK and Australia and the West have, have failed to, to help vaccinate the rest of the world, uh, which is still struggling with high hospitalisation rates because they haven't got the vaccines that we have. Yeah, I mean, that's a really very good point. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. There's almost a kind of a, there's a silliness about it as well as a, a selfishness, and that is that these variants are sort of likely to arise as a result of the virus circulating in populations. That's the way variations on uh, reproducing viruses actually occurs. They have to be circulating to do that, and out of that you can get new and uh, more dangerous strains. We're seeing that happen. The West is just kidding itself, isn't it? The global north just kidding itself uh, if it thinks that it can just keep insulating its population from or inoculating its population from this and, and, and not really addressing these these variants at source. Completely. And and you know, we had news a couple of weeks ago that the UK had thrown out 600,000 doses of AstraZeneca rather than the, donating them because they just didn't get their systems and processes for donations up and running in time. And more than that, what you're seeing is completely inadequate commitments to vaccinate the rest of the world. So at the G20, the UK promised it would donate 30 million doses by the end of the year. It's donated about 18 million of those doses. But in terms of those numbers, you may remember, Mark, during the height of Australia's winter wave, the UK donated some three or four million Pfizer doses to Australia in order to enable Australia to vaccinate its population more quickly. And then Australia was going to donate Pfizer doses back to the UK sort of for our winter. So it was a a swap arrangement. And it's really unclear if those 18 million doses include those donations to Australia, which of course would be a, a really sort of um, reprehensible fiddling of the numbers to say, oh, we've donated to Australia, which can afford its own vaccines and just ordered them late uh, rather than to the rest of the world. And it looks very much as though this new variant, you know, one of the 
the theories is that this new variant was inside the body of an immunocompromised person in Southern Africa, potentially someone suffering with, with HIV and AIDS, who we know have, have less effective immune systems, and was able within that person's body to continue to spread because they weren't able to fight it off and to continue to, to gain all these mutations that the scientists are so worried about. And so it's not just that we are putting people in those countries at risk, as you say, but we're putting ourselves at risk. And and Sir Jeremy Farrer, who is the chair of the Wellcome Trust, which is uh, Julia Gillard, is now the chair of the Wellcome Trust. It's one of the UK's leading scientific bodies. He resigned from his government position earlier this year as a scientific advisor saying he couldn't support their strategy. And he came out with a really punchy op-ed on the weekend saying that the emergence of this variant meant that the world was closer to the start of the pandemic than the end, which frankly I found pretty depressing to read, and saying that that we in the in the global north had failed uh, in terms of protecting not only others but also ourselves. Yeah, and we've been talking about this for a long time. Australia's uh, slated to cease its production of AstraZeneca, I think, by the end of this year. That that's uh, that's that's a bit of a worry when you consider the massive need for vaccines around the world. I would have thought that the um, if if we've got to a point where we we don't need have have the domestic demand, that's the perfect reason to be continuing on producing it and making sure that at least this region, but potentially anywhere that needs it, can have access to to our vaccines. I mean. The you know everyone talks about Omicron at the moment, and you can understand why because it's sort of starting to really spread quite rapidly, and there's not as much known about it as we'd like to know in terms of the, its severity and the extent to which existing vaccines are effective against it. But of course, Delta strain came. You, you might recall it was originally called the Indian variant, and for reasons that are obvious, they that needed to to change. You know, that's just a way of kind of vilifying countries as, as, as we had with, of course, Spanish flu 100 years ago. It wasn't really Spanish at all, but uh, that's just where it was discovered, I think. But Delta, of course, is, is a result of the same process and Delta is still running rampant around the world. In fact, quite frankly and regrettably, Delta is in my household right now. You know, I'm sitting in a house broadcasting from a house that's in complete isolation as a result of COVID. And the fact that some people are, you know, so cavalier about this is... Uh, right at the moment has me incandescent with rage. Yeah, and it's, I think, particularly around, you know, I've defended the AstraZeneca vaccine on this podcast before. You um, did, you did, very strongly and very presciently, if I can invent that word. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Um, I love I love being the subject of a new word. But what I would say particularly about sort of AZ and, and vaccinating the rest of the world is we, we know it is sort of at cost, it's much easier to transport, it's much easier to use. But in fact, what we've seen, particularly in the UK, where we've had this mix and match approach to first vaccines and, and boosters, is that the mix and match is the most effective way of creating additional immunity. Yes. So if we know that everyone's going to need a booster, why not keep producing AZ, do first and second doses of AZ where it's easier in a lot of these countries that don't have the kind of cold storage refrigeration needed for Pfizer and Moderna, and then you only need to do the booster doses with one of these mRNA vaccines, which cuts in half the difficulties of, of transporting these vaccines. So it, I agree with you. It's completely short-sighted to, to stop production of AZ at this point. Yeah, so the situation in the UK at the moment, the atmosphere, I suppose, amongst ordinary people, you know, the discussion on the street, is it anything like the level of consciousness that it was in the early stages of this pandemic? Because certainly when we've spoken to you and, and Bevan Shields before, I got a sense that in the UK people were just starting to, you know, very much get back to their 
ordinary lives. But as you say, you're going into winter now, um, the numbers are starting to, to increase, you've got this new variant. Is, is it really front of mind again? It feels, it feels a bit more on edge. Um, the government have said they can't confirm people's Christmas plans until the 18th of December, so sort of seven, seven days out from Christmas Day, when they will know more about how infectious Omicron is, how much it's putting people in hospital or not, and how the booster program is going. So you know, my mother-in-law doesn't know whether or not to order one small turkey first for her and her husband or, or a large turkey because all of us can, can gather in Cambridge together this year, which, of course, we weren't able to do last year. And people are beginning to wear masks more on on public transport and in shops. It's finally been made mandatory again after a pretty lax summer. I don't think there's much appetite for further restrictions. And that's one of the things the government's really worried about is that we've had this summer with quite pronounced spread, you know, 40,000 cases a day, looking at sort of a thousand deaths a week. That's been the sort of the baseline in the UK since about May. And People do not want to go back to, to lockdown. They don't want to go back to working from home. You know, 68% of Brits say they don't want the pubs to shut again. Um, and so it's hard to see what else the government could do, but it does feel like these measures are, are a bit too little if this is going to be a really severe wave. So I think there's just a lot of anxiety, anxiety whilst trying to live a normal life, which is probably, it may be what the future is and maybe what the new normal looks like, but right now it's not the most fun way to celebrate a lead up to Christmas. No, certainly isn't. You mentioned uh, big turkeys, large turkeys. I think was the term. I'm going to come to Boris Johnson in a in a bit. But just on this on this point about, I suppose you'd call it fatigue, or I'm not sure what the the sort of public psychological term for this is. But it's it strikes me that governments around the world that have in you know have enacted quite severe restrictions on the basis of information they had in the early stages of this pandemic are now in the same circumstances against you know against a, a threat that may be every bit as substantial as it was last time but by virtue of this public fatigue factor and this political factor are just not able to enact those same restrictions again and that's sort of understandable at one level but one also wonders whether it isn't potentially extremely dangerous uh, when you know we know that those those policies, however difficult they were for people, we know they were more effective than um, leaving society going on as it was going and allowing the, the virus to rage. Now, obviously, a key difference is the level of vaccination. But as I said, we're not completely sure about Omicron for a start uh, in terms of uh, vaccine efficacy. So it's it's an interesting problem for governments to have, isn't it? Yeah, I think that the UK government bet that having a really normal summer with very few restrictions and people being allowed to gather in, in large numbers and not having mandatory masks might make some more restrictions over winter a bit more palatable. They sort of thought, well, if we let people have a summer, then likely or, or as likely as not, we'll have to have some form of restrictions over winter because we know that the virus spreads more easily indoors in, in cold temperatures. I think what's happened, in fact, is that people have had a summer of freedom. They've remembered what you know life used to look like and they really, really don't want to go back to a more lockdown lifestyle with more restrictions. And so I, I remember right at the beginning when we, we first talked at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this sort of surprise from UK public policy experts at how readily Brits adopted the restrictions that were needed as part of the pandemic. You know, they thought people just wouldn't wouldn't approve or wouldn't comply with a lockdown. Yeah, this was the, the committee that was that was advising Boris Johnson, the senior scientists, that they, they actually sort of made – 
an overly conservative judgment really about that saying, oh, well, democratic societies would not accept the kinds of restrictions that might be ordered in in some other places like was what was happening in China and China obviously sealed off Wuhan and and uh, the whole province and you know there were very sort of aggressive measures taken to contain the virus and the British government never really juggled with or, or wrestled with that question early on because there was this assumption by the senior scientific advisors medical advisors that Britons just would not put up with it well as it happened which is what you're saying, really, as it happened, they eventually did go in for quite high levels of restrictions because they could understand that uh, this was needed to contain the virus. Exactly. But we're now at the point, I think, where people are really reluctant to, to do that again and where the government is worried that if they introduce more stringent controls and people don't follow them, then you have this huge loss of, of government authority and there isn't any more wriggle room after that. So that's why is that, Brits- though, is that Sorry um, um, to, mm-hmm. to jump in there, Elizabeth, but is that because, in a sense, the restrictions became highly politicised? You know, they've been used by uh, those people who are opposed to them and really turned into sort of weaponized almost in the in the political debate this has made governments extremely shy of them there's the there's the negative impact of these restrictions on people's lives but there's also this very strong taint now associated with I mean not in the same way we've seen of course in in the US I think Australia's and the UK is similar in which you have this sort of vocal group of, you know, libertarians here. The, the parliamentarians are calling themselves the COVID research group, which is sort of uh, an oxymoron if ever I heard one. Um, <laughs> and they are researching the impacts of being absolute idiots about restrictions. But there is an overwhelming sense that, you know, the government is trying to do what's right. There's not a huge amount of protest. But I think if you were try to, to try to reintroduce, for example, working from home and make that the rule, the thought is that that would cost the economy about £18 billion. And that is on top of, obviously, all of the economic scarring and damage you've seen over the last 18 months, plus the economic damage and scarring of Brexit. So there are real concerns, I think, that if they do have to push people into more restrictions, that's when you'll see it being politicised and that's when you'll see a sort of a right flank open up on the Tories and people like Nigel Farage jumping back into the political arena and fighting against some of these restrictions and saying that people have to live their lives. So the UK government is is all in on vaccines and boosters and that's our, we've got to keep our fingers and toes crossed that that works. Mm, interesting. Let's take a quick break and be back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How do we ensure technology makes our lives better? Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, host of Talking Tech Policy, a new podcast launching on December 9th. Do you want to know how much data Facebook and Google actually hold on you? Why does this matter? And what can you do about it? Will technology really get our world to net zero? And by 2030, will we all be living in Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse? What even is the metaverse? Do we want it? How do we shape it? The decisions that we make about technology policy today will shape the technology of tomorrow. 
and that technology will shape our world. Welcome back. Now, Elizabeth Ames, you were saying just before the break that the government's, you know, all in on on um, uh, vaccine program and boosters and, and looking to get the, the policy outcome from that. Boris Johnson, how is he going himself? What, did he get before we even get to the the vaccine? Did he get much of a boost out of out of Glasgow out of hosting the United United Nations uh, Climate Summit? Not a huge, uh, not a huge amount. I don't think. I mean, I, I listened to your excellent uh, episode on on COP twenty six with Sophia Gaston, who is, as you know, a good friend of mine and someone I I love to listen to. And I think her assessment was right, which was that the UK government had really hyped this up that it ended up being a bit of a damp squib. It was, you know, Glasgow is very physically removed from London. It is a long way away. It's difficult to get to in part because the UK doesn't have the sort of fast trains you would need to, to get there more easily and more quickly. And so it didn't have much of an impact outside of that Westminster bubbles. And you didn't see Putin and Z attend. So you didn't see two of the leaders of two of the biggest, you know, com- countries that would need to make commitments in order to actually keep ourselves to something like the 1.5 degrees of warming, actually commit to anything there. So there wasn't a huge domestic bump from that. And then it all got subsumed in this huge Tory sleaze scandal, which is is interesting given what's going on in Australian politics at the moment as well. Sort of, again, the, the crossover and the links between the two countries in terms of what's happening with their leaders going into the Christmas break. Well, give us a sense of that Tory sleaze scandal. Yeah. So it's really, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary to me coming to the UK as an Australian. So British politicians are still operating a little bit under, you know, those old Olympics rules where you had to be an amateur and if you were paid to be a sports person, then you weren't a real sports person, so you couldn't compete at the Olympics, which of course were dropped many decades ago because it's pretty impossible to be a professional sports person and have another job. uh, So that Michael Jordan could play at the Olympics, I think, or something like that. Exactly, exactly. I was going to say, unless, of course, you're a, a woman participating in the Olympics, in which case you have far less sponsorship and you often still need to maintain a second job. But we can we can yeah. have that debate another time. Um, in the UK, politicians are still completely allowed to have outside jobs and there are no restrictions on how many hours they can work, how much money they can earn or what those jobs can involve. And lots of them, particularly Tories in safe seats who aren't going to get another ministerial position, have second jobs and they have second jobs as advisors to companies that are trying to get contracts with the government. They have second job in the in the famous case that's blown up here, a guy called Jeffrey Cox, who used to be Sir Jeffrey Cox, sorry, who used to be the Attorney General under Theresa May's government. It turns out he has been working remotely uh, in the British Virgin Islands for the last 18 months in the sunshine, helping that government to run a court case against the UK government, which is trying to force it to crack down on financial corruption within the jurisdiction. So you have the spectre of a former Attorney General of the UK earning millions of pounds while working nowhere near his home constituency and nowhere near the parliament to in fact fight against a law that the UK government is trying to impose. And so that was sort of part of what kicked kicked all of this off. And, and before that was a guy called Owen Patterson, who was an old school Brexiteer who had done about £100,000 worth of lobbying, which is still a huge amount of money, but is small, small beans compared to what some people are earning in the parliament, it turns out. And Boris Johnson tries to get the entire Tory party to protect him from a parliamentary suspension. The protection worked, but the uh, media reaction forced a a U-turn and Owen Patterson has since resigned. And this has just opened this huge can of worms about second jobs. And and Johnson is really between a rock and a hard place because, of course, the public hate the idea that their MPs are off doing other things and not doing their job as an MP, looking after them and their electorate and their interests. But 
senior Tories who don't have a chance of getting back onto the front bench and do have a chance of making Johnson's life very difficult by not voting for his bills hate the idea that they will lose their second job because they think it's their right to be able to earn as much money alongside their parliamentary career as they like. You're right. That is so culturally different from what is acceptable in Australia, um, I, as you say, probably culturally different from what is really acceptable to most British voters when they when they think about it. It is fundamentally corrupt, it seems to me. Uh, it means that the constituents install someone who may not be working for them at all. It's not just that they've got another job, but they could be literally pursuing interests that are contrary to those of their constituents, as in the case of Cox, for example. I mean, that, that's borderline treason, I would have thought. You know, it's uh, operating against the government of the UK. It's it's genuinely quite an extraordinary situation. I think Brits don't, when, when they understand how it works, most of them are sort of appalled. But there isn't this sense of sort of complete outrage that when I discovered that that, that was something MPs were allowed to do, I was sort of flabbergasted that, that it was even allowed here and, and still allowed. But there is now this push against it and and Johnson has to walk this very fine line of, well, what restrictions do we bring in? The Labor Party are saying, you know, we think that all second jobs except for ones where you need to maintain a professional qualification. So you have to, for example, do so many hours of nursing if you want to go back to be a nurse or you have to do so many hours in the NHS as a doctor to be able to go back and, and some professional qualifications like accounting. Similarly, you need to do a certain minimum number of hours a year to hold on to your professional qualification. So the Labor Party essentially wants to ban all outside jobs apart from those minimal hours in terms of making those professional qualifications to enable people to go back to lives after politics if they so choose. But it really, it's a huge issue and it's one that that is dogging um, Johnson as we go into Christmas and one that is not going to go away in terms of his internal party management. So he has a, a majority of 80 seats at the moment. But if you think about how many backbenchers there are that are disaffected, that have second jobs, that are beginning to question his his leadership and his decision-making and these constant U-turns, I think it's going to be quite a difficult Christmas break for, for Johnson as he thinks about what he should be doing in, in 2022 and, and where the government needs to go. Yeah, except that he seems to have this capacity to maintain this cheery disposition through just about anything, and uh, it's it's that sort of vaguely his his own version of a, a sort of a Churchillian approach to you know have that sort of stiff upper lip and a generally rosy disposition. He's a, he's an optimist, and voters seem to like that. He even had a party quite recently, as I understand, in Number Ten, which uh, there were some concerns about. Um, you know, who paid for it. Yeah, it, t- it turns out the party wasn't recent. It was on the 18th of December last year, but it was on the day that all of the rest of us were told we could not see our families for Christmas, we right. could not mix, and we were going back into lockdown. And it turned out number 10 had their Christmas party and their Christmas drinks despite that. And so <laughs> I wonder, I mean, I think it's one of those things where you see, you do see that, and you're seeing this a bit with Morrison at the moment as well in Australia, where someone who seems to be very, very lucky, who has a sort of golden touch with everyday people and with the media, the drip, drip, drip doesn't seem to be making much of an impact. And then all of a sudden, it's as though the accumulation of stories suddenly cause a shift in the way the public sees that person and the media can sense that as well and you get a change in the way that person is reported. So for Johnson, it is he's very optimistic but actually he doesn't get things done and he protects his own and he lies to the public. You know, it's not optimism actually, it's just lying with a smile. 
And for Morrison, as you know, again, it's this idea that actually he doesn't tell the truth. He fiddles with his past statements. He can't own up to something. He can't take responsibility and grasp something and and do what's needed if it makes him look bad. And I think for very different reasons and from very different sort of mental states, there is this interesting sort of connection in the way that the public are beginning to see the the prime ministers of, of Australia and the UK. Yeah, that's a fascinating observation, actually. I really like that line. It's not optimism, it's just lying with a smile. Certainly, that's the, the way that uh, Johnson has kind of projected, I think, and it's got him through. It's, it's It plays to a certain, I don't know, plucky sense of Britain's sense of its own pluckiness or whatever it is. But, um, yeah, there might, might be some limit to it. And as you say, that drip, 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 it instantly made me think of, you know, like a leak in the roof and it's raining into the ceiling and you don't know much about it for a while bit of a wet patch appears and suddenly the whole you know ceiling caves in and uh, perhaps uh, perhaps that that is what he faces and it's going to be interesting to see whether there is that same cumulative kind of damage that has been done to Morrison's standing as a result of all of the difficulties and all of the U-turns and everything we've talked about these on on this program before and it's going to be fascinating to see whether that actually is building up around Morrison he, Morrison got quite a boost actually I think uh, from from Johnson saying that uh, Morrison's pre-Glasgow commitment to net zero by 2050 was heroic, I think was the term he used when talking to a bunch of school kids and it it played a fair bit, got a fair bit of coverage here in Australia as if this was an endorsement. Um, at the time, I just thought, well, this is just Johnson trying to, you know, talk up progress around his uh, conference. What did you think? I had a very, very similar sense. It was sort of, you know, Johnson doing uh, doing Morrison a solid, praising him partly because it was good for Johnson. It made Johnson look good that he'd got this recalcitrant nation that really, you know, is a pariah in terms of climate change uh, on the global stage, that it was Johnson and his efforts and his mateship with, with Morrison that had dragged Australia over the line. And so I saw it much more, as you say, about promoting the summit, promoting what Johnson and his team had achieved at the summit and making Johnson look good rather than necessarily making Morrison look good, although it had that corollary effect back in Australia. Yeah. One of the other things, of course, that framed the the Glasgow conference was the G20 beforehand at which Morrison and Emmanuel Macron had their, their famous differences over uh, over AUKUS, the betrayal, the submarine reversal and everything else. But the, but the Brits have also been having an ongoing spat with with Macron's uh, administration in France as well over over trade and a range of things. And I noticed that Macron in the last couple of days has had a, a face-to-face meeting with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, which is controversial as well. I, I wonder what you make of the way the French are conducting themselves at the moment. Is Macron about, you know, sort of stamping himself as the heir apparent, the, the, the new broom after Angela Merkel's departure? Is that what he's about doing? Is this about his own election? And what's behind the friction across the channel? I mean, you're completely right. There's sort of a, a range of factors that's been really interesting to see it play out. You know, we think about when Macron turned up on the scene and he was sort of a brand new face. He was positive. He was sort of running as a libertarian, you know, as everyone's favourite along with sort of uh, Justin Trudeau and, and Obama was this sort of threesome of young, energetic men who are going to change the world from the sort of centre ground. And what we've seen with Macron is we've seen him move further to the right, partly to protect that flank from the sort of the the more likely challenges internally in France. So that's sort of the traditional French right-wing party, the Republican Party in France, and then also Marine Le Pen 
and uh, the Front National and the, the sort of the, the far right in France, which we know has always been a, a reasonably strong presence uh, there. And part of that is beginning to sort of push back on on some of the, the comments made by the UK and some of the behaviour of the UK around Brexit. But it's also very much, as you say, about Macron wanting to protect the EU, wanting to seem like he is the new EU leader as, as Merkel steps down. It certainly looks like Schultz, the new German Prime Minister, the new German Chancellor, won't have the same global stature uh, and won't have the same stature in the EU. So there is an, an open paying field for Macron. Unfortunately for him at the moment, EU unity rests on completely excluding the UK and really sort of punishing the UK for the sin of of Brexit. And that's across a number of fronts. So there's the ongoing negotiations. We're still talking about the border in Northern Ireland and how you manage goods and services across that border. And that's still not resolved. You know, there've been seven meetings this past sort of since the summer between the UK and the the EU negotiating team on, on what to do about that border and what to do about the movement of goods there. But there's also this huge crisis now in terms of people crossing the channel in small boats to claim asylum in the UK. And the UK understandably uh, are incensed. They say this is France's fault, that France should be policing it better, that France should make sure these boats aren't able to leave. You and I, Mark, have both been to the Normandy coastline. In fact, I think it's where we first met uh, going going there with uh, Prime Minister Abbott, as he was at the time. And it is a very long, flat coastline. It's very hard to police. You know, there's, there's a huge amount of open and barren land for these small boats to launch from. Just ask the Germans. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so it is it is a really tricky situation where the Brits say, you know, it's it's and in fact very similar to the relationship between Australia and Indonesia, although it never became so heated between Australia and Indonesia at the political level, but you have an enormous number of people risking their lives in a very dangerous crossing trying to get to the UK. You have this new sort of swing of migration through through Europe, particularly exacerbated by the recent fall of Afghanistan back to the Taliban. And you have France saying this needs to be a cooperative thing, or in fact, it's the UK's fault because there are pool factors in the UK that are the reason these people are trying to cross to the UK. And you have the UK saying France needs to deal with it. We've done Brexit. We won't accept any more free movement. Not that, of course, claiming asylum is is the same as free movement of people. And we don't think that France are holding up their end of the bargain. And so it's a completely toxic situation. It's becoming very similar internally in the UK to the debate you saw in Australia about people arriving on boats and um, the sort of, you know, boat people and, and illegal migration as it was called. And Australia's even being referenced, isn't it? I've, I've heard Tories saying that they're going to learn from Australia's policy and adopt a similar sort of approach, some of the same language. Uh, if you arrive here by boat, you cannot stay and all these sorts of things. And to the point of setting up camps overseas. So, in fact, the UK yeah, has been third, negotiating. Third country, that's right. Third, yeah, third country, country processing. Yeah, detention. Yeah. Uh, so, the UK has been in negotiations, I believe, with Albania uh, on whether or not to it can set up camps there for people and potentially, and also looking at sort of debt source countries, not necessarily Afghanistan, Iran, which which continue to to provide the majority of the source countries, although you also have reasonable numbers of people trying to come from Eritrea and other parts of Africa. So not refoulement to those countries, but certainly to, to processing countries like, or processing countries of arrival like Turkey um, and Tunisia and other places that, that people are coming across from. So there is a huge bill coming into the UK Parliament on Wednesday. Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, will stand up and, and discuss it. And that is expected to include some of this offshore detention and processing and also to include measures like not allowing people to claim asylum when they land, 
to make them go back to the country that they first could have claimed asylum in and, and to include these flights. And you've seen people who were victims of the Australian system and people who were part of the Australian system actually write open letters to the UK saying you shouldn't go down this path. It was incredibly costly and, and had a huge toll in terms of people's mental health and, and human life. So it's really it's a bit depressing, to be honest, to be to be back seeing this debate from the beginning and seeing no application of what we have learnt of the impacts of, of that sort of system on people's lives in Australia being taken into account in the UK. You're right. Uh, in fact, uh, sorry for everyone listening. And these are the facts, of course, but we've you know had some pretty grim things we've spoken about today uh, in respect of COVID and where we are with the situation there in respect of corruption and uh, the poor level of representation in politics in the UK and in Australia, as has been widely discussed. And of course, in terms of this migration thing, you know, big, big problems that um, at the moment just don't show any sign of uh, any short-term resolution. Elizabeth, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. You're so well-informed and, you know, we hope that you have a a brilliant Christmas in the circumstances. Not sure whether you're going to uh, try and make it back to Australia at any point, but I hope that you do have a, a brilliant Christmas and um, thanks for being with us on Democracy Sausage in 2021 and we can't wait to have you again in 2022. Thank you, Mark. I think I will try and make it back depending on Australia's borders policy early 2022. So maybe we can do a, a live podcast IRL in Canberra. Wouldn't that be terrific? It's uh, so much nicer being able to speak face-to-face and also without even the sort of little micro lag that exists uh, when you're doing it uh, via the you know brilliant technology that we have, actually. We shouldn't be complaining about the fact that we have these podcast platforms and the technology exists, but it does uh, make for a slightly different conversation and be great to do it face-to-face at some stage, and we'll look forward to that. Thanks again, Elizabeth. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. One more to go. Next week will be our, I hope, well-anticipated Politician of the Year. It was certainly a popular episode last year, perhaps not some of the choices that were made. But, um, yeah, very interesting to see what we all make of it. Uh, There will be Frank Bongiorno, Professor Frank Bongiorno, and, of course, Maria Taflaga, and perhaps a fourth mystery guest as yet to be nailed down. But we'll be having a bit of fun with uh, who's done well and who's done poorly particularly in Australian politics over the last year. So look forward to that. That's it for now. Bye. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.